Can you imagine what it feels like to be a Canadian soccer player as Peter Vanagas blows the whistle? It's official. Canada, 2000 World Cup champions. How does that sound? You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Neff. Yes, it's episode 45 of the Northern Football Podcast. Happy New Year, everybody. I'm Peter Galindo with Thomas Neff. Did you miss the show as much as I did, Thomas? Uh, yes, I did. We start the year the same way it ended. Top of the Ocho. It's a World Cup year. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, hope everyone had a fantastic holidays. Listen, I hope you enjoyed our year-end review with James Schramman and, and Brendan Dunlop because we will have more of those roundtables with top journalists and some of them abroad. Um, it's a crazy packed show for the first episode of 2022. We have the latest on the Canada camp. Uh, Canadians in Europe are still playing, can you believe it or not, the week after Christmas and before New Year's. The mailbag and the poll makes its return as well. Yes. Oscar Johnson has joined CF Montreal. Lorenzo Zinnick look, looks like he's on his way to TFC. I have an F-bomb in the Metro situation. A dual nation has not picked Canada, as many of you have probably know. And what I reported, FC Edmonton has been sold to the CPL, and we have Steven Sander on as a guest a little later, plus a news and notes section. And finally, we have an announcement about a partnership that we're very, very excited about. And thank you so much to everyone uh, who has given us ratings, because in the last two weeks, we've gone, since Spotify announced that they have ratings, we've gone 52 of those and over 20 on Apple just in the last two weeks. All right, Thomas, while you take a breath... I will go through all of these uh, programming notes that some of which you kind of touched on here. So before we dive into all that stuff that Thomas mentioned, uh, a reminder as usual that the Northern Football Podcast is partnered with Northern Tribune. Check them out at northerntribune.ca for everything Canadian soccer and follow them on Twitter at North Tribune. And we are proud to announce that we are now partnered with the fine folks at Canucks Abroad. I'm sure you already do, but if you don't, follow them on Twitter at Canucks underscore abroad for updates on literally hundreds of Canadian players abroad and check out their site at Canucks-abroad.ca as well. Finally, as Thomas mentioned there, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. If you use Apple or Spotify, then be sure to do what several of you have done over the last couple of weeks and leave us a rating and review if possible. So yeah, let's dive into the first subject here, Thomas, which is the latest on the Canada camp, which is uh, that there really is no news. It begins on January the 9th, the extended camp, as well as the under-20 camp, that is. Recently, Jonathan David tested positive for COVID-19. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, the reason that the squad announcement and everything else has been delayed is because of the Omicron variant. Uh, We expected the squad to be announced late last week, just before New Year's Eve, but that obviously didn't happen. We've seen Ontario impose more restrictions on Monday. So we asked the listeners, will Canada's home qualifier on January the 30th go off without a hitch? And what I mean by that is no fan limits, uh, no venue changes, things like that. The final results, after 273 votes or so, uh, 56% of you say no, 
while 44% of you say, yes, it will go as planned. Some comments from some of you. Mark Carvalho says, uh, since I have tickets, God, I want to say yes, but my heart, my brain, even my liver are telling me it is not going to happen. Uh, Kurt Thiessen saying probably reduced fans. Meanwhile, Van S at Vans underscore Jet says it's outdoors, so it will be played, but attendance, I'm sure, will be lowered or no fans at all. And Maple Syrup FC asking a pretty interesting question here, Thomas, to get us started. Are there any restrictions in place for the Central American countries that the CAN-MNT are visiting during the next round of qualifiers that will drastically change the atmosphere in those stadiums if there are reduced numbers of fans? Uh, as far as we know, Thomas, I don't think so, but having covered uh, the matches in World Cup qualifying from a Honduran and El Salvadorian point of view. Um, do you have any sort of info as to what Canada could be facing here? Uh, no, not really. Uh, besides everything that has been uh, made public, um, I do know that the COVID protocols are very, very different for Central American teams coming into North America um, because I experienced it myself when I went over to the hotel and, and look, some of those, you know, you'd have a, a FIFA official in the, in, the, in the lockdown in the hotel uh, lobby. But again, I mean, these protocols, I think they're going to be pretty strict, you know, for Canada in Central America and for the U.S. and, and in Hamilton. Because I know that there's no margin for error. So the big question here, it's tough to predict a virus, of course. But do you anticipate any part of this camp from January the 9th until the beginning of February to be impacted by COVID in any major way? Um, okay. I mean, how, how can it not affect it? Uh, speaking to a player's inner circle, uh, the camp hasn't changed. Uh, it's still going through. Uh, and that was two days ago, and I don't think it will change. But when we recorded on December 20th, there was 3,000 cases a day. On New Year's, there was 18,000 in Ontario, and now it's down to 13,000 uh, per day. From everything we've learned uh, in the past, these two weeks, uh, which people are not very happy about, that the lockdown from the provincial government uh, should flatten the curve. Uh, there's still time. There's still a lot of time left till January 30th. But it wouldn't surprise me if less media and fans from the U.S. made the trip uh, to Hamilton. As I said before, Ari alluded to, CONCAF and FIFA cannot and will not, I don't think, suspend or cancel any games mm. Uh, it's not up to them, of course. Uh, they don't have the final say, you know. I'm sure Ontario and whatnot, they have to have some important input. But at the same time, you know, they had to create this international window in January, which UEFA is not happy about. Yes. Uh, especially <laughs> now with this Omicron. A and look, I mean, this this virus is, is... Nobody is invisible. I mean, it pains me to say this, but the best player in the world, Lionel Messi, as a Chilean, uh, he, even he got COVID, so anyone can get it. If someone like a Jonathan David is of an unavailable due to COVID, which I hope doesn't happen and pray oh, doesn't yeah, happen. He'll be fine by then, for sure, you would imagine. No, but I'm saying if a player gets a COVID within a couple days before the count. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or between that time, the games are going to happen nonetheless. Yes. Like, there's, there's, nobody's yes. going to get a pardon. If yeah. Honduras couldn't bring Albert Ellis, uh, now that wasn't COVID, but, you know, the uh, other thing. But if, if, you know, some players or some countries aren't with their best players, I mean, no one's going to take mercy to it. Oh, yeah. And that's why, that's why this January camp is so important that happens because uh -huh. you might be having some European players be left at home. Exactly. And this is what's throwing a wrench into 
everything from the travel logistics to figuring out which players have just recovered from COVID or which ones are currently experiencing it. Uh, you reported, I think, earlier in December that uh, Theo Corbinu actually had COVID. Now he's recovered from it, but he's now only just starting to get his legs back underneath him. So like certain things like that are affecting things. Now, Corbinu would probably not be a part of this extended camp, but really the, the issue is getting the players there. Once they're in Florida, where COVID restrictions are non-existent, <laughs> it'll be fine. Uh, but it's going to be then traveling back and forth, uh, making sure that obviously everybody is is sticking to their bubble and no one really gets it. But I am optimistic that the game will happen, at least with full capacity, because if we look at South Africa, where the virus was said to have originated, the, the variant, they experienced about a four-week spike in cases. But it's been going down since the middle of December, uh, from about 20,000 cases in a day to 10,000 cases in a day. And considering how reactive the Ontario government is to this sort of data, the cases should start declining very, very soon. In fact, they already are, as you kind of touched on, uh, especially as people receive boosters and recover from the virus. Uh, and there's a reason why I think they put the January 26th date in those restrictions, because that's about the time when it should get to a more respectable level. Pretty confident that with the match also being played outdoors, the match will be played as scheduled with everybody present. And that's really, I think, all you can ask for, because it would be a massive disadvantage if Canada couldn't get not only full capacity for the atmosphere, which we've seen great atmospheres for in the last few games, but also the financial aspect, because look at how much money they generated just from those two qualifiers in Edmonton alone. You know what that theme means. It's time for some Neff bombs, uh, as Thomas teased off the top there. Uh, you reported on this show a couple weeks ago that Mista was going to depart Atletico Ottawa. That, of course, happened. Now, Mark Dos Santos, who was heavily linked to the job as soon as the announcement was made official that Mista was leaving, recently told our friends at Northern Tribune that he isn't taking the job. So, what else can you tell us about that situation at the moment? So Jeff Hunt, co-owner of Atletico Ottawa, when speaking to Mark DeSantis, the numbers just were way off of what one was asking of the other. Pretty much said thanks, but no thanks. Uh, as the league revealed the salary structure publicly, uh, the coaching staff gets uh, $400,000 Canadian. He's now valued himself as an MLS head coach in his rights. Um, he's looking to Europe. Uh, of course, Ottawa is much more less expensive than, than Vancouver, but yeah. uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he's looking uh, somewhere like uh, Portugal. Yeah, definitely wouldn't be a shock given his connections there. Finally, last but not least, you tweeted on Christmas Eve that Stefan Mitrovic has an offer from Red Star Belgrade, his childhood club. His agent, however, is also expecting offers from Club Bruges, Genk, Bologna and Leicester City and Mitrovic will be in quotes 100% moving this window. You have however since Christmas Eve received a fresh update on this situation so what can you tell us? Yeah so his inner circle feel that Raniki Nish has become small for him. They want someone where he will develop and most importantly play. Uh, as mentioned the offer still stands from Restaurant Belgrade. 
Uh, negotiations have started with Red Star, and a meeting is happening this week. Um, of course, there's a lot of uh, pressure and politics involved in Red Star, so they're looking at Club Bruges. They're really pushing for that. They're the one that have shown the most interest out of all the clubs, including Red Star. And in a few days, negotiations should start with the Belgian club. Uh, and if that doesn't work, they will listen to offers from everyone else. But again, I mean, that's that's what I know at this point, and, and they're looking at uh, that specific club. Uh, and like you said, I mean, uh, Red Star is uh, the childhood club of uh, Stefan. But yeah, I, he would. It would be very shocking, like one percent chance that he he stays where he's currently at. Yeah, pretty fair. Um, so with that, the question now: Do you think Club Rouge is the ideal landing spot for him? I myself have reservations about it. What do you think? Considering all the pressure and politics at Red Star, and just the demand to win every single match. And considering that he's already playing in the Serbian League and has showed that he's good enough to play in the Serbian League, I think Belgium would be good. I think that club like Bologna, Leicester, he's ready for that move kind of yet. What I can tell you right now, and I heard this, you know, when I got the information Christmas Eve, but I wanted to reserve it for later, like right now, um, he's 100% committed to the Canadian national team. Like, he, he's going into this with uh, a fresh mind that, you know, Canada is his, his new country that he's going to be representing from now on. I do have reservations about him going to Club Rouge specifically. Belgium is a league, more than fine. That's a great next step to take. When we go through the list of clubs and the positives and negatives, Leicester would be probably the worst spot of those five options. They already have James Madison, Harvey Barnes, Adamola Lookman, who all play in his position. And that is a massive, massive, massive step to take, right? From Serbia right to the Premier League. Red Star Belgrade would be cool for Mitrovic because he is a fan of the club, but... Not only is it a lot of pressure, Thomas, he is ready to go abroad and challenge himself. He did say it on the show him, uh, straight from the horse's mouth. So if you don't believe me, just go back and listen to the show. But even small things like the crowds, the, the quality of the pitches are, are better in places like Belgium, Italy, England, what have you. Uh, and it's also pushing Mitrovic outside his comfort zone, which can really help a young player. And you get the sense when we spoke to him, he really relishes that challenge. So for this reason, it really would be down to Genk and Bruges and possibly even Bologna. But the reason why I am hesitant about him going to Bruges is he has a lot of competition to usurp at Bruges right now. They have bona fide starters on the left-hand side, headlined by Noah Lang. They have a couple of options in the number 10 role. The right flank is wide open right now, but you imagine that's earmarked for Tejon Buchanan now that he is there. Yes, there's a new coach and maybe things can change, but it would be a massive, massive challenge to crack that when you have so much young talent to also get past. The fact the club wants him is a very good sign and they're pushing hard for him. And a challenge is always good and competition is always good. But when you look at just the surface level situation in terms of where he can get the most minutes, because that's how he's gotten to this situation in the first place is by playing regularly every single week. Bologna actually wouldn't be that bad of an option. They have a Serbian coach there? They have a Serbian coach in Sinisa Mihailovic. Serbian players have a strong pedigree in Syria. They're owned by a Canadian in Joey Saputo, so that's a massive point in his favor. But when you look at the competition in the positions he plays in, Musa Barrow 
is the only player who plays in any of Mitrovic's preferred roles, is doing well this season, and he could be sold this summer at the latest. There are experienced players like Roberto Soriano, Nicola Sansone, but none have particularly impressed this season. And they are solid rotational players and experienced players to have, but not guys you would want to rely on every single week for a top half team. If I had to pick a second team, maybe Genk, but Junya Ito and Theo Bogonda are killing it on either flank right now. And I think Mitrovic's game would suit Syria. He's technically proficient, tracks back, works hard defensively, and appears coachable if his rapid improvement over two years is any evidence. Um, he could prove me wrong. There, there's a big loophole in European football, and it's a problem that doesn't really get discussed a lot, is the clubs that have the most money are the ones at the top. Yes. And the middle, the mid-table clubs rarely ever, and I know this changes from league to league, but the mid-table clubs rarely ever go for an international. Because a lot of people, reminder, Mitrovic is not European Union, like Serbia is yep. not part. So mid-table clubs rarely go for international players. So when they go to play for a club like Club Bruges or, or one of the top clubs, the competition there and pressure is so high that if they don't play, they don't get that chance to go on loan to a mid-table club. Because obviously mid-table clubs rely on many domestics. Yep. So this is like a big problem that hasn't been addressed just because they don't have the money, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's a great point to make for sure. On that note, let's move on to the newly named Canucks Abroad roundup. Tejan Buchanan has joined Club Bruges for their winter camp in Marbella. Uh, the camp began on Monday and will run until January the 9th. He could make his debut on January the 15th against St. Truden. Um, now, Bruges also has changed coaches as Philippe Clement left for Monaco and Alfred Schroeder has replaced him as a result. So your thoughts on this latest development, Thomas, do you think this is good or bad for Buchanan? So first and foremost, just want to say a blessing in disguise that there's a break in between the schedule because if Buchanan came in and they're already training, like it would just be like, he would have to be, have to play catch up real fast. Yes. And now that he's training and whatnot, can quickly get adapted to his European teammates and whatnot. On the coaching situation, I have mixed feelings because one manager leaving, I, I am sure that he had a big say on signing Tejon. Now, I'm sure the club will likely get the incoming manager to play him anyways, considering just how much money they invested in him. That's very true for sure. Really, it's not great timing, but if it was to happen now, let it be now. And he can make an impression on the coach. Maybe there's a new system they have to learn so all the players are on a level playing field, right? You, you just don't know. So I, I suppose it, it is a good thing. Although I feel like Clement still would have given him that opportunity if he did stick around. Uh, but now he can come in with a fresh perspective and, you know, maybe Buchanan thrives as a result. Now, after initial reports over the weekend, Thomas, Fenerbahce confirmed that Ferdi Kadioglu has decided to represent Turkey, as we've kind of been anticipating for a few weeks here. It was previously reported, but then the Turkish Federation seemed to believe that the Netherlands were back in for him, which kind of threw everything into disarray. But now that the decision's been made, are you surprised by his choice? Not one bit. Canada was never part of the picture. Uh, if the Netherlands uh, did pursue him in last minute, that's what's surprising of everything. But guys, on to the next dual national. Life continues. Karioglu, Tomori, Marmouche, Hunter, others, the rest is history. Mm -hmm. the, the only thing I will say is this. I would have liked him to have waited until March and make his final decision like he said he would. 
uh, because by then Turkey would have been eliminated, Canada would have qualified, and there might have been a small chance. But again, this is all hearsay because there's nothing more that we can do. I hope this is the last time someone ever asks us about Karioglu and we speak him speak of him again on this show. You said it best right there, but I'm with you. I'm also not shocked. And I, I made this comparison before. This reminds me a lot of the Portuguese Canadians who were kind of holding out hope for Portugal. I'm talking Ostakio, Vitoria, Ferreira, and then ultimately didn't get that dream scenario. So Canada was like a very solid plan B for them. We're like, they're happy enough to commit because they are Canadians after all. They're more than happy to come into the program. But if the opportunity was there, they play for Portugal. And I think this was the same case for Kadioglu. The dream was the Netherlands. Once it became apparent it wasn't there, Turkey was a very solid plan B for him. And he had just as strong of a chance playing for Turkey as he does for Canada. Some might bring up the World Cup prospects, sure, but he also has the Euros. So I guess that maybe softens the blow as it were. And even still, they can end up qualifying for a World Cup here and there. It's not the end of the world. So in South Korea, Thomas, Daniil Henry kind of caused a bit of a stir because he removed Suwon Blue Wings from his Instagram bio just before Christmas. Should we read into that at all? Yeah, it's funny. I should actually email the Suwon Blue Wings press officer I still have his contact when he gave me that interview with Henry. Uh, no, you definitely have to think so. I mean, maybe a return to Europe or the MLS is in the cards for him. Stuff like this is usually never a coincidence. And if he leaves, he's departing one of the best leagues in Asia. And you just hope that he plays somewhere that's similar level because it is a World Cup year, as I touched on in the very beginning. And he has to be playing. He may not be a guy that's playing the important matches, but he won't be playing the less important, less important matches to give uh, Steven Vittori rest. Agreed. In terms of recent performances for some Canucks abroad here, Daniel Jebison came off the bench and scored his seventh goal of the season in all competitions in Burton Albion's win on the weekend. Um, should he return to Sheffield United this month, Thomas, or do you think he should stick out the rest of the season with Burton here? For me, Jebison has showed enough in League One to warn himself and move back to Sheffield. It's all the urgency of Sheffield because they are the parent club. They just, they make the decisions on that end. If they meet him, I think that's gonna that's what it's gonna come down to. Now, I think Championship is more of his level. I mean, I mean he's had several Player of the Month performances in League One. It's super impressive as an 18-year-old. But, you know, if he doesn't end the season, if he does end the season with Burn Albion, I should say, um, you know, it's not the end of the world. He has plenty of times. There's many players that have played one year in League One, one year in Championship, and then finally made the made the move to, to the Premier League. But again, I think it's, uh, it's not... It's, the situation has to be rushed. I think it has to be something that happens naturally. I disagree. I don't think he should go back to Sheffield United for the simple reason that he would have two or three players to usurp. Now, they haven't been impressive like i'm talking billy sharp david mcgoldrick so maybe with the form he's in he possibly gets a look in uh i believe paul heckingbottom is still the coach there so he's someone who's very familiar with jebison maybe that gives him an advantage but he's playing every week in what is a pretty good developmental league for young players and he's only improving week by week he's being coached by jimmy floyd hasselbank who's was a very, very solid Premier League striker for Chelsea and, and among others. Um, it's a good situation to be in. 
I, I think he should at least try to stick that out the rest of the way. Because I think if he came back to Sheffield United, he might just end up getting stalked on the bench and then his development gets stunted as a result. I, I, I don't know what, what ends up happening. Sticking to the championship, Junior Hoylett was back in the starting lineup for Reading for the first time since October the 2nd and bagged a brace as a result. Really nice start to 2022 for him after a rough ending in 2021, mainly due to injury. Uh, how good is it to have him back, Thomas? At least fit and firing again from the looks of it. Yeah, and, and one of those goals was an absolute cracker. I mean, yes, you have was. to say it. You, you, you can look it up. Like, the goal was incredible. Um, Hoyle is so underrated. People forget this, but he's the 10th all-time scorer of the national team. <laughs> uh, and he still goes under, under notice sometimes. So, uh, look, it was getting very concerning. Uh, him missing both October and November window. Now that he's back uh, out of injury, I expect him to, you know, be that leader on that second line of attack with uh, Ugbo, Buchanan, or Miller. I think there's more than enough space uh, to fit all seven of them, you know, in the line. But yeah, I think Hoylet uh, having back is, is a blessing in disguise because you can never have too many options. You definitely cannot. Uh, on Ugbo, he scored his sixth goal of the season to help Genk defeat Ustenda on Boxing Day. Uh, the Belgian League is now on pause until the week of January 15th to the 17th. Kyle Lahren struck for his seventh goal of the season before Christmas for Besiktas, then logged 68 minutes in a loss to Konyaspor on the 27th of December. He was then on the bench for the Turkish Cup win on Thursday. Atiba Hutchinson started and scored in that one. Yet more proof that we need to clone Atiba as he approaches his 39th birthday in about a month's time here. My God. Sticking in Turkey, Sam Adekubi was sent off for Hatispor in what was easily his worst performance for the club since he arrived. That forced him out of the team's Christmas Day victory. But then he returned to the lineup for the Turkish Cup game on December the 28th. In Portugal, Steven Vitoria went the full 90 for Morarense in a 2-1 defeat to Tondela in the Portuguese league. Uh, on Boxing Day, Scott Arfield had 25 minutes off the bench as Rangers defeated St. Murren. Sandra Solholm went 79 minutes for Motherwell in their win over Livingston before he exited with an injury. The substitution was precautionary, though, so that is good news. Uh, the Scottish Premiership is now on pause for the winter uh, until January the 17th to the 19th. In League One, Theo Corbinu had the start for Sheffield Wednesday against Shrewsbury, and there are several Canadians who are on break that are set to return to action soon. They are as follows. Alfonso Davies, uh, he is going to be back for Bayern Munich on Friday as they face Gladbach. Lille are back from the break this Tuesday at Lens, but Jonathan David misses out after he was, of course, positive for COVID-19. He was also named Liga Player of the Month for December. Liam Miller and Basil play Lucerne on January the 30th, but he could miss that due to international duty. Derek Cornelius's club, Panatolikos, will return to action versus Pauk on Wednesday. Stefano Stacchio and Pachus uh, will start the year against Benfica on January the 9th. Red Star Belgrade and Milan Borjan come back to league play on February the 11th. In Germany, uh, Scott Kennedy and Jan Regensburg return January the 16th against Sandhausen. Harry Payton and Ross County play Sandra Solholm and Motherwell on the 18th of January. And finally, Richie Ennen, who is on break with Nizhny Novgorod in the Russian Premier League, uh, comes back on the 22nd. 
So from the Canucks Abroad Roundup to the Canucks Abroad Mailbag we go. Due to the holidays and the lack of Canadians Abroad in action around that time, uh, I didn't field any requests for my Sportsnet Roundup last week, but fear not, we're still answering your questions that you submitted to our Twitter over the weekend. So with that, Thomas, the host mic is all yours. Yes, and I have to say over 30 questions. So Nuts. It's going to be jam, jam-packed. But we're going to start with some transfer-related questions. And the first one is from Shan Wagoner and Wayne Shagoner. Uh, we've all heard rumors about Eustachio, David, and Jaquille Marshall already. Any word on landing spots for Farsi, Ongaro, or Pascal? Any other names out there that are being attached to European moves? Well, you reported, Thomas, on Irish interest in Eastern Ongaro, what, a week or two ago? So um, I assume that's still in the air. Mo Farsi, as we know, is out of contract because he wants to pursue MLS or European opportunities. It One thing we can say, it doesn't appear likely he's going to Montreal. I have spoken to some people kind of in the know there. Doesn't look like they're going to make an offer for the hometown kid so we can rule them out. But he is being scouted by MLS and European clubs. It's just a matter of who pulls the trigger now. Love his technique, pace, and overall offensive instincts, but I think if he's going to be an impactful wingback, he needs to improve his tactical awareness and defensive acumen. Far too often, he's casual tracking back, and that left Cavalry's right flank very, very exposed. As for Pasquale, he had trials with Anderlecht and Venezia, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago. He's also changing agents, so that could delay things a bit as well. So we'll have to see what happens with him. Also part of the same discussion, Stefan Jordan asked Jordan, 1988, is there any move for Kahneman T players that we aren't aware of? Haven't seen anything. Keep in mind, though, that not a lot does tend to happen in January because a lot of clubs kind of wait to do their significant business until the summer. So I think we'll start to see the rumor mill maybe start to really get loaded here come, say, May, June time. Connor Johnson at Con Johnston asks, has Laren shot himself in the foot with his ambitious contract request? Uh, which, by the way, uh, if you haven't seen it, he's asking for $2.2 million mm-hmm. at Besiktas. There's so the question follows as, or will the often remo- rumored move to England materialize itself in January? Every day it seems like more and more likely he will end up back in Turkey for the original price the Eagles have offered. Well, let's put it this way. The fact Laren's demands have gone down a little bit, like he was asking for 2.7 in, what, October, November time. That went down to 2.5 maybe about a month, month and a half ago. It's now at 2.2. So the fact it's gone down shows he's willing to at least meet the club halfway. Unfortunately for him, they don't seem to be. And I don't blame Laren for asking for this kind of money because he earns about 1.5 to 1.6 million euros annually. Whereas new signing Alex Teixeira makes about 3.5 million euros and a lot of guys are kind of on that sort of pay grade. Uh, that's the same for Mishi Bashuai, for Miralem Pjanic. Those guys are on loan, of course, but still, you have to pay them. And now the club is linked to Luke de Jong from Barcelona. This kind of indicates that he's probably on the way out. But the reason he's asking for this kind of money is, the guy was the top scorer last season for the club. He played a major role in them winning the title, getting into the Champions League. Yes, it didn't go too well there, but he's still scoring goals at a pretty decent rate. And he's still not being paid like the top dogs. So I think it's only fair that he asks for what he feels he's valued for. Now, in terms of what's going to happen in the next month or six months, whenever he ends up moving, because it looks like that's going to happen, Besiktas 
is crippled financially. This was the case before they won the league and qualified for the Champions League. Now that they aren't going to be returning to the Champions League, they'll probably be willing to shed some larger wages like Laren's off the books to finance a De Jong move because obviously if Laren's going to be going, they need a replacement. Uh, and Laren's not the only one that they're going to be letting go who's on pretty significant wages either. But when we look at what could happen when it comes to a transfer, Laren now allegedly has, or at least his agent has, offers for at least 2 million euros per year elsewhere. So now they have some leverage in this regard. But allegedly, the, you never know. Allegedly, of course. <laughs> now, some reports have said that the clubs who were interested in him are Marseille, who were linked to Laren in the summer, Brighton, who I believe were also a, another club rumored, Southampton, West Ham, and Everton. Some of these clubs have obviously been in on him before, but regardless, that's quite a few suitors. Apparently, Lille might also be one of them as well. Perhaps a Jonathan David replacement. We'll see. I just hope for his sake, it isn't a move to the Premier League, as I don't think he has the technique to cope there. Same with the Bundesliga as well. I, I think he'd struggle a bit with the intensity there. Well, listen, on that Laren to Lille, I have uh, some thoughts. I've been thinking about this uh, the other day. David goes to the Premier League. I think Laren would be a fine replacement at Lille. Next question is from Van S at Van underscore Jets. I just want to know where Ostaki was going. He can't stay where he is. Completely agree. Club just won his first game since August not too long ago. Uh, if he isn't moved to a bigger club this month, we will riot or get him a new agent. And on the same question, Mike Lafara at M underscore Lafara 15. Always hear about Ostaki moving in the Portuguese league, but what about a move to a different European league? And finally, one last question from Beaverball. When will Laren and Ostaki finally figure out their next moves? I think that was all caps, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it was, it was. <laughs> fair enough. Um, well, I mentioned uh, Portuguese reports saying that Sergio Conceição, the Porto coach, has Eustachio on his wish list. So that's still on the table for him. But consider this. A club will need to pay upwards of 7 million euros, perhaps more, to give Pasush a sizable enough profit to make them happy. Because Chavez owns 40% of Eustachio's rights, and then Eustachio himself has 10%. So in order for Pasush to make a decent um, uh, enough profit on him, that's probably around the price they'd have to agree. Now, regardless, I'm baffled why clubs in top five leagues aren't pursuing him because that is still a bargain. No doubt, though, needs to move by the summer. He's just turned 25. He's at the top of his game. He's being wasted where he is at the moment, and he's more than good enough to play for at least one of the big three in Portugal, if not in a top five league. PA Sir at Pierre Andrews Sir 2 asks, with Ricardo Pepe reportedly being sold to Augsburg, a club that Tejan Buchanan was linked to, yep. uh, for $20 million, and Daryl Dyke being sold, looks like, uh, to West Brom for 9.5 after Buchanan was sold to Bruce for $7 million. Uh, do you think there's a premium on USMT versus CanMT players, most likely based on their appeal that the U.S. consumer market? Oh, yeah, that's 100% part of it. But when we look at the on-field stuff, it's easier for Americans to obtain UK work permits due to their world ranking, their accumulated world ranking, right? Canada could eventually get there, but for right now, they're not. Second, there are a lot of American owners in Europe, which comes with many benefits, including them being willing 
to take a chance on an American player. And the owners are aware of the marketing opportunities that come with signing a U.S. international. So they are more willing to sign those guys, all that type of stuff. That's why and Pepe... Americans have been proved in Europe for, what, 10 years now? Yeah, maybe even a bit longer than that. That's why, though, Pepe moved to Augsburg for $20 million. Because Wolfsburg had the deal done, and then Augsburg came in and then offered just a crap ton more money. The value of Canadians is going up. And, and just in general, the more Canadians that do well at club level, the more opportunities other players will get. Because while national team performance does get a team's attention sometimes, clubs will mostly care and look at how the player performs at club level, since that's the larger sample size. They'll take national team form into account, yes, but mostly the club stuff is prioritized. All said, Americans, for the most part, and Canadians are still supremely undervalued in the European market, but it's probably especially the case for Canadians. This one's an interesting one. It's from Vince Alvarado at Vince by Demand. Are there any players either of you are following who you've been impressed with but are surprised they aren't getting any buzz from Canadian fans? Uh, Peter, for me, it's Richie Ennen. Yes, he's uh -huh. not that much of a regular in the Russian Premier League. But at the same time, with Lucas Kalini not playing at all and uh, – Recently committed Ike Upo, um, you know, Bram not being matured enough. What other number nine do you have uh, available to you that is playing some minutes? Yeah, the, the thing with Enon is he's not really an out-and-out -out nine. And stop me if you've heard that before, because it seems like the majority of Canadian center forwards aren't your prototypical number nine. But regardless, you put him in a team with the quality around him that Canada has. I think you would see some end product coming off a bit more. Because one of the reasons why I think the numbers aren't so impressive for him at Nizhny Novgorod is they're one of the lower ranked teams in the league, first of all. Doesn't have as much quality around him, but he's always making things happen. He's very dynamic. He He's not afraid to progress the ball. Very technically proficient and really good at maneuvering through tight spaces. You put him in that Canada team, he could actually do a very good job. So I agree with you on that. He's definitely someone that's still a bit undervalued by the wider Canadian soccer fan base. For me, the players who I think are under the radar and are worth following, they're on the younger side. Georgi Atanasov is the one that came to mind for me, first of all. The 17-year-old forward winger with Arda in Bulgaria is one player that I really, really admire. His technique and physicality-wise, he's very advanced for his age. He just has to play a bit more often and adjust to the pace of the professional game to really make markable improvements. But he's he, he has the template to be a very talented player. He also sounds interested in coming to a U20 camp. So toss him an invite, why don't you, uh, if you're the CSA. Another one is Geronimo Sabatasso. I've brought him up a few times, but this kid is really damn good. The close control, dribbling, vision, quickness, all of it is incredible for a player that age and the fact that he's in the youth system at Empoli the fact that he came from Independiente in Argentina as well shows that he has the pedigree to become a very solid player if he gets the opportunities and speaking of Georgi Atanasov he actually heard of us speaking about him a couple months ago so I'm sure he's probably wanting uh you know Canada interest if he wasn't as you already touched on U20 call-up uh, next question is from Vidi 
H underscore S. Does Corbianu get significant minutes in the next window? It's a tough question. As of right now, I'll say no, because there are a lot of wingback and winger options on the national team. Even when accounting for the right wingbacks being MLS-based pretty much entirely, it hasn't also been his primary role since becoming a regular at Sheffield Wednesday. And he might not be playing enough by the time the qualifiers come around to justify getting significant minutes. He got COVID, which was really poor timing given how well he was playing before that. And now he's recovering from a lack of rhythm and match fitness. So I just think it's an unfortunate time for him to have suffered it and then to be coming back into fitness just now. But maybe in the next couple of weeks, if he continues to shine, perhaps he changes John Herdman's mind. North Van Steve at North Van Steve wants to know, could we see Christian Gutierrez at the January camp? He was excellent for the Whitecaps when he was healthy this past season and could become an all-star Johnson type option as a left side for the national team. Well, for me as a Chilean, like I have a soft spot, <laughs> soft spot for Christian Gutierrez. And I know you do too, because I remember you, you, you've done some scouting of your own in the, in the Chilean league way before he was even playing yeah. for Colo Colo. Yeah, man, I, I really liked him. I, I, I've liked him for years at this point. I'll say this now because the CSA may mess with us by announcing the squad by the time this episode drops, knowing our luck, but assuming it hasn't been revealed yet, I do hope we see Gutierrez there because he was one of the few bright spots when Dos Santos was the coach in 2021 and also for a time in 2020 when he got a run of games. He injured his hamstring, so he didn't get a lot of minutes under Vanny Sartini. But when he did, you could see the quality of his crossing, dribbling, and vision being utilized to its full potential. And the reason I'd be hesitant deploying him as a left-sided center back, he's not defensively strong or very dominant in the air. Whereas Adekubi, at least defensively, is quite proficient. And he's occupied that role with Canada at times, depending on the game state. So he's somewhat familiar with that specific position. The other thing that I think comes into play with this, Gutierrez's distribution is a huge weapon in the final third. It's arguably his best trait. So it would be a bit of a waste if he couldn't go up and down the flank utilizing that. He did do well with his progressive passing as a left-sided centre-back at times with the Whitecaps under Sartini, finding Brown or Gaspar, um, you know, releasing them into space. But the bad outweighs the good for me if Gutierrez would play in that position. Obviously, with the amount of depth at, at wing-back and full-back on the national team, he might have to adapt regardless. But right now, don't know if that's the best idea. Mike Lafarbe, will we see Jebison or Flores in the January camp? Obviously, Flores has in the past said that he's going to come to camp. And obviously, Justin bothering him on his Instagram post. But we see you at a camp. But uh, but I tried to find some information on Jebson from former youth coaches. But the, they were very tight-lipped. Yes, which may be good, may be bad. Well, I guess we'll find out. Um, I think Flores is, is basically a guarantee because we've stated countless times on the show that he wants to participate in a camp before making his final decision on his international future. So you can probably expect him there. Jebison appears unlikely because Burton really need him. And it's a non-FIFA window prior to the qualifiers beginning. And even then... 
they might be a little hesitant to release him just for those qualifiers. I could definitely see Jebison and other dual nationals coming in for the Nations League in June, which I think is going to be the case for so many guys. Might as well call it the Conca Cap Tying League, if that ends up happening. David K at, at David underscore Kiesman. How would you rank the chance of capping both Jebison and Flores, given we're talking about them still? Yes, uh, he also asked about Mitrovic, but Thomas, you already addressed that earlier. So uh, that answers one of them. Herdman did sound confident about Jebison's future in the summer. Obviously, a lot has changed, but he's Canadian-born, has a far greater chance of playing for Canada, and I'm not reporting this for the record, but my gut feeling is that Canada would still be the favorite for him. And it's just not been convenient timing to call him up when they could have brought him in. Now that he's settled at Burton and doing well, perhaps we see it happen in the next few months. Perhaps as early as March, if Canada secures a berth and maybe they just want to, you know, give him a a call up and cap tie him and, you know, kind of show him some love as it were. Not as confident in Flores because of the family pressure, but who knows? Maybe the Canada experience sways him, but of the three, I think he appears the least likely. God, you know what's crazy to me? It's just how young those two guys are. 17 and 18 years of age. I know, man. Even by 2026, they could be 22, 23, which is, you know, like the age of like so many of our other wingers. Yeah. Cannon, Miller, Ugbo. I mean, Ugbo places for him. So there's going to be another one. Guys like Hoylet and stuff like that retire. Um, there's definitely going to be a change of flow. But CPL 2.0 at 86 chills wants to know about Lucas Diaz more of a part of a U20 plans going forward or the senior men's team for Nations League. So he's looking like way ahead, like, yes. you know, 2023. Yes, he is. Um, well, he's definitely part of the senior team conversation if he gets called up. Mark Clavajo at Iggy Fan 2001. Same conversation. Do you think Portugal rates Lucas Diaz as if they rate him very highly? Do you think he would be more inclined to play for them than Canada? I'm sure Portugal has Diaz on the radar since he played for them at youth level before. And they track a lot of young Portuguese players, especially if they play for one of the big three. But in terms of how much they rate him, probably not as highly as Canada would because Portugal have so many number 10s, both at the youth and senior level. So I have a feeling that if Canada comes calling, they'll probably end up being able to convince him in some way. Borian's pants had Borian's pants. <laughs> what is Lucas Diaz's status between Canada and Portugal? Is he committed and waiting for a call up to Canada, or is he undecided in bidding his time so he can get Portugal national team level interest? I can say this: Diaz actually received an invite a few months ago for qualifying, but respectfully declined it at that time to focus on his sporting career which worked out in a way. He's a regular with the B team now, did well with the under-19s in UEFA Youth League, and could make his first team debut by the end of the season, and he's still 18 years old. So despite what happened with the under-23s, a lot of it was bad luck, but some of it was also some pretty bizarre selection issues with with Mauro Biello, because quite frankly, Diash was the best attacking player they had, and yet he barely played. It sounds like he's still pretty open to the idea, and Canada is at least interested in bringing him in it's just a case of once again timing just like it is with jeppesen boom galindo bomb yes lucas diaz 
Rejects Canada call-up. <laughs> Front page newspapers. If you want to twist All it right, that way, Moving yes. on now. Moving on now. Uh, PJ Dula at P33J. How do you rate Hugo Tavares? This is a new one. Is he a legitimate option for the men's national team? Would he pick Canada? You had mentioned there are other Canadians in Portugal mm-hmm. in earlier podcast. Who else is there besides him? I'll answer that one first. Um, Jordan Alvarez is one name that is probably worth tracking over the next few years. Uh, 17 years old, plays for Boa Vista. Predominantly like a number 10 type, also a winger. Ken plays a winger. Um, so that's another Portuguese-based youth player maybe worth watching over the next little while. Hugo Tavares, um, primarily, much like so many other young Canadian eligible players are these days, is primarily a number 10, but that does fill a need in the current player pool, so the more the merrier in that regard. Uh, plays for Pashus, to those who don't know him, uh, where Stefan Ostaki, of course, is at the moment, and turns 19 uh, in about three or four weeks' time, but did very well for the under-17s when he first arrived about a year or two ago. But there's been no film or anything on him from the past year with the under-19s, so it's hard to assess him properly, but the fact he's in the system at a Premier League club is pretty encouraging, you have to say. Aruyan at Aruyan 5, Babal Halbuni and his development. Do you think by the end of this season, he could make his debut for the first team of Werder Bremen? And one quick thing, according to Gareth Wheeler of One Soccer, he is one of the players invited to the January camp. Yes, and well-deserved. Also got a call-up to the January camp last year as well, so this isn't the first time. No doubt about this, Halbuni is far too good for the German fourth tier now. He looks very comfortable playing there. Um, But the jump to the second Bundesliga is quite the leap, especially for a massive club like Bremen. Unfortunately for Halbuni, he got screwed over by COVID because the rest of the season last year got canceled in the fourth tier of, of, of German football. So he really should be about a year ahead of schedule if it wasn't for that. Never say never. Bremen might love what he's doing in training and with the reserves and give him a shot. But I feel like maybe going on loan to a club in Austria or Switzerland, if if Bremen don't play him by next season, could be the way to go for him. Spin at Spinels Cans. Where would you rank Sandra Soholm on the Kahneman T center back depth chart? I think you've already answered this in the past. Yeah, I could have sworn we discussed this in, in part a couple weeks ago, but just in case... He is a legitimate rotation option, perhaps a peg below Scott Kennedy, but on the level of, say, a Daniil Henry or Manjikar James. In terms of the right-sided centre-back options, he's arguably second behind Alistair Johnston, ahead of those other two guys that I mentioned, Henry and James. He's not as quick as Henry, but arguably as fast as James, and has the edge on both when it comes to vision, aerials, anticipation, all that stuff. So... Probably a pretty reliable option if he were to end up getting called up. Wow, that's huge, considering the options are very thin there. Canon T updates at Canon T updates. Can you do an update slash scouting report on how Gabriel Pellegrino is progressing in Germany? Also ask possible player for Canada's U20. Uh, yes, I believe he might have received... Uh, an invite to be part of the 50 players uh, as part of the under 20 player pool that could go to the CONCACAF U20s as well as January camp. But I can't fully recall because I've had a lot of conversations with different camps. So uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember, but I think he was part of that. So he is an option. 
Again, though, no film to judge Pellegrino's progress properly, but by all accounts, he's killing it with Freiburg, really doing very well as a number eight, so he could kind of fill that role. Can also play a bit more advanced. He's quite dynamic, you know, box-to-box midfielder type. So there's flexibility there, but I think as a number eight, that might be his preferred position right now. Also, another question from Arian. In Jaquil Marshall's Ruddy's case, should he stay with TFC, considering there are reports of Jovinko coming back and TFC going after Insigne, or should he sign with Liverpool and try to compete for a place in the first team? Whoa. Or go on alone in the championship. Yeah, let's walk before we run here. (laughs) Highly doubt he's going to get the playing time at TFC to justify staying. So I think if he were to go to Liverpool, it wouldn't be the worst thing. He can train with the under-21s for a year or two, maybe get a loan. Then he can move elsewhere. As long as he gets his foot in the door in Europe, he has a chance to stick there. Just has to make sure he doesn't go the way of Liam Miller and stick around too long. Because I think Miller could be a lot further along now if he had left Liverpool, say, a year or two ago. Right, but but it, it ended up working, you know, for Liam Miller. It did, yes. You also have to think... Uh... Jaquil Marshall is a professional now. So going to U23, you know, I kind of have my doubts um, on that. But, you know, but he is, is so preliminary he, too. He's also just turning 18 and he did only get like, what, 400, 500 minutes, uh, you know, at, at the pro level. I, I think going to the under 23s and training at a club like Liverpool could still be very helpful. But again, every player, every situation is different. All right. And these are the last two questions. Mark Lapointe at Keek 16. Ricardo Ferrer, where is he? Uh, unattached. Yeah, unattached, still without a club, and he might be for a while because he is injury prone and injuries have done their number on him, which is really unfortunate. You know, we should have him on the show, just have him explain it. Honestly, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, Jay Fitzsimmons at Jay Fitz Soccer, what, whatever happened to Tyler Tardo? Um, I can actually answer this Please question. Do. He had interest from. Sweden, as well as other places that I cannot say. Funny enough, Fowler didn't even know how to properly negotiate a transfer, so it had to actually go to the CPL main office. Oh, my lord. Uh, I don't mean to embarrass them at all, but that's exactly what happened. And, you know, time happened, time happened. Uh, offers became to slowly die down. Interest became to die down. And, obviously, he ended up signing in the Cyprus second division. You know, bad choice. I think maybe he had a very good future. Even the CPL, he could have been an impactful player for a couple of years. um, Because he was one of the best players of that disastrous Valor team. Um, But yeah, it's really unfortunate. It is, 100%. So that will do it for the first edition of the newly named Canucks Abroad Roundup. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for submitting questions. Um, Moving on to a couple pieces of big news in MLS. Uh, Alistair Johnston was traded to CF Montreal from Nashville in exchange for $1 million in allocation money spread from 2022 to 2023. Nashville also receives a 10% sell-on in a future sale if Johnston moves abroad. So lots of moving pieces to this, Thomas, um, and there are lots of angles that we can examine this from. So what do you think of the move from both a national team and the player's perspective? Okay, so this is amazing news for the national team and for John Hardiman. Uh, Base case scenario, really. I mean, Kamal Miller, which, by the way, we had him on the show, and Alistair Johnson now, two of the three big pieces of our defense core playing together now at club level. Um, it's going to help 
you know, all of 2022, just build chemistry, uh, and it will reflect on Canada's national team. Um, but I do see some downsides, and there's a couple of them. Uh, you can argue that he is taking playing time away from two Canadians, Waterman and Brock Gillard. Uh, and I just don't have, want, don't want him to be complacent. I know there's obviously the chance of a future sale if he moves abroad. Um, Johnston could play the rest of his career in MLS and, and, and still be an impactful national team player. But I think his ceiling and his potential is much higher than, again, when he was making a cool 73,000 American at Nashville. And... Again, I think there's good, you know, in playing with Kamal Miller and, and obviously being a World Cup year and whatnot, but I'm surprised why he didn't get traded to a, a better MLS team like a New England uh, Revolution or whatnot. Well, I mean, uh, they, they just didn't put in the offer, simply put. Right, right. But but I will say this to end on a, on a nice tone. The best national teams have multiple uh, scenarios where uh, several players play at the same club, and that helps yes. a lot. I mean, yeah. hint, hint, Spain 2010. Yeah, plus 2012. I do agree with you. From a national team perspective, it is good. But you can still look at it in two different ways. Yes, two of the starting center backs are playing for the same club in a back three, which is obviously very ideal. But the pessimistic way, a prospective European-bound player is staying in MLS for the next 6 to 18 months. Not the end of the world, because defenders peak later in their careers— so even if Johnston left MLS at age 24, 25, that's fine. But from the player's perspective, which is where this ties in, I'm sure if he had his sights on Europe, Johnston would be a bit let down. But he does sound very excited to go to Montreal. They did push hard to acquire him by all accounts based on what he said. He's also a fluent French speaker, which will go down well with the fans. And he's the perfect ambassador for Canada soccer as well, having a bilingual player, right? Um, or another bilingual player, that is. So the, the next pertinent question here, Thomas, where do you think Johnston will play for Montreal? Do you think it's going to be at right wing back? Or do you think, as we've kind of already mentioned here a few times, right-sided center back? Well, before I answer that question, I have to say, looks like Wilfred Nancy is also a, a fan of the program as well. Yeah. <laughs> like, obviously he, it's not like he did this out of just the blue. I think he must have had some sort of think there. I don't think that matters too much. I think um, just because in the national team, there's just been so much flexibility where the formation even changes within the game, like mid-game. Um, I, I could see either uh, position, right wing back or right center back uh, for Johnston. Although I will say this, Johnston compared to Brock Gillard, I mean, if he is to play right wing back, I mean, uh, Brock Gillard is so much more dangerous and, and has scored some pretty nice goals for Montreal uh, this past year. So I don't know if Johnston can do that. I mean, I could be proven wrong just because he was, he, he did give that assist that bounced off Mevochoa and then, right. and then Laren scored the goal in Edmonton. So again, I mean, there's just so many variables, but at the same time, I don't think it's that big of a question. I think Nancy will figure out regardless. He's 100% playing right-sided center back. Given that they've lost Rudy Camacho, Joel Waterman has some pretty glaring weaknesses, and there's so much depth at right wing back already. I think it would be kind of weird if you spend a million dollars in allocation money and a 10% sell-on to sign yet another wing back when you need another center back. Plus, Johnston gives them that other ball-playing center back option with keen tactical and positional awareness. So just those alone, he's a pretty decent upgrade on Waterman and he's younger with more resale value. So I think it's kind of a win there. Now, 
In Toronto, uh, lots has happened. My God. Um, According to multiple reports, in Italy and North America, Toronto FC and Lorenzo Insigne have agreed to terms on a a five-and-a-half-year contract. Insigne will join the club in the summer as a designated player and will earn approximately 11 million euros per year after taxes with four and a half million euros in add-ons linked to goals and other individual targets. Just a eye-watering amount of money. Do you think this is a good move for Toronto FC, Thomas? Lots of different perspectives here, but as a whole, is this a good thing for the club? At TFC, they must have something from short Italians, you know. Uh, they needed to make a splash, and, and they did. They certainly did that. Um, although Insigne, he scored more goals in the past in previous years. Again, he, he's won at the Euros, and he's playing for one of the big clubs. I'm sure the prospect of making $11 million a year for more than he's making at Napoli, you know, enticed him. After um, taxes. Correct. <laughs> enticed that is true. But look, I mean, when MLFC has all this money to spend, you know, just because they're worth billions, again, the, the, I think this will help fans come back to the stadium if they're allowed, of course, because when Jovinko left, you could tell that they didn't have a proper replacement hmm. for him. Um, but now people are saying that Insignia is going to be the best player in MLS history, that all this. Oh, man. I, I just think people just need to just relax and... Yeah. He's a very good player, and, and it will be announced likely when Soteldo is gone. But at the same time, and, and I do agree that, you know, you know, Jovinko's agent, you know, spoke to his camp and whatnot, gave him good recommendation and whatnot. But, you know, and we'll talk, we'll speak to him in a little bit, but he looks like having another national team teammate, I think, helps a lot, especially with the language and the culture. Yeah. But there, there's no question. I, I think he's going to thrive and succeed and score 15 to 20 goals. Um, but once you get to that third, fourth season, 33, 34, um, I think he could start to slow down. But, hey, I could be wrong. I mean, Serie A players sometimes play until they're like 35, 36. Look at Luca Toni. He played until he was 40, right? Francesco Totti, same thing. I am going to go on a bit of a ramble here. Just a bit of a warning to the listeners. When you sign a player like Insigne for those wages even if it turns out to be less because there's apparently a bit of a dispute as to how much he's actually going to be making, but it's a lot of money. Let's just put it that way. You're doing it for both on and off field impact, particularly for the latter. Because as you touched on there, Thomas, attendance has really suffered the last couple of years, especially during the pandemic. Now, the, the team also struggled as well. So that obviously plays into this. So they have to do something big. Insigne will drive season ticket sales and overall gate revenue, bolster the team's image in the market across MLS, um, you know, sell shirts, all that stuff, right? In terms of whether it's a good move on the pitch, depends on a few variables. The club needs a number nine, desperately. That significantly contributed to Soteldo's polarizing status among fans, I feel. And mark my words, Insigne will be as polarizing if they don't sign a proper number nine or Io Aquinola, who you know, provided they trust him in the role, hasn't returned to anywhere close to his 2024. Which leads me to my next point. As someone who used to cover Syria and Italian football in depth for four years and still watches like three to four matches in Syria every weekend, Insigne's best seasons in terms of goals and assists came under Maurizio Sarri and Carlo Ancelotti at Napoli from 2015 to most of... 
the 2018-19 season during his prime years. Under Sarri, Insigne thrived in a dynamic, free-roaming front three with Dries Mertens and Jose Callejon, who all had very specific instructions. Insigne often scored via third-man runs, which is uh, you know running behind, say, Dries Mertens, who would drop deep, then pass it to someone who'd find the on-Russian Insigne, or Mertens himself would find him once Insigne made the run when Mertens dropped deep. He also benefited from Hamshik and Fauci Gulam combining with him on the left side and offering protection off the ball so Insigne didn't have to track back as much. He'd also drift inside a lot and take several low-quality shots, which could end up benefiting him from what I like to call the MLS tax, which kind of sees a, a bump in goal scoring, despite maybe taking lower quality shots because the defenses aren't as strong in MLS. Tactically, it's a little bit behind compared to Syria, things like that. For assists, he'd do well to find pockets of space in the left half space, drive into that open space, then hit a through ball for an onrushing forward towards the box, which is why he needs a number nine around him to latch onto those chances or just runners into the penalty area in general. He's always overachieved his expected goals, even when subtracting penalties out of the equation. Um, and that's something that a lot of people have seemingly kind of glossed over is that when they talk about his goal scoring totals and his best seasons, they include about five or six or seven penalties in, in amongst that. If he's deployed the way he is now for Italy and Napoli, then I think he's going to disappoint a lot of media who are clearly thinking the team is getting a different kind of player. One other factor to consider Insigne has never really been the guy for his team, even under Sarri. Koulibaly, the, the fullbacks, Jorginho, and Dries Mertens were the most important Sarri players in that system. With Italy, after Spinazzola got hurt against Belgium in the quarterfinals and Domenico Berardi was dropped, strangely, two of the top open play chance creators for Italy were Spinazzola and Berardi. Insigne was sixth for the team at the Euros. Mancini, when Spinazzola and Berardi were just dropped, be it through injury or whatever else, said, all right, enough dominating possession and playing free-flowing stuff. We're going to seed possession, pounce on the counter, strike on set pieces. It obviously worked for them. But if Insigne was the guy, some media thinks he is, Italy wouldn't have had to make such a massive adjustment tactically, even against Spain. But Insigne never took over those games. He had one goal against Belgium, and that was it. Um, I'm not saying he won't be impactful in MLS, but he needs to be deployed in a specific manner if you want him to be a 15-plus goal scorer and get close to 10 assists. And perhaps MLS tax benefits him, but if he is deployed the way he is now as more of a out-and-out winger, then I think he's going to disappoint a lot of people, especially given the money he'd earn. So with that, Toronto FC is also linked to Torino striker Andrea Bellotti, whose contract expires in June, while President Bill Manning is reportedly in Italy to secure the Insigne deal and to follow up on Berardi and Genoa defender Domenico Crescito, among others. Um, the club also completed a deal to sign defender Shane O'Neill. I know a couple of you asked questions. Uh, Jesse at Jesse underscore JM and Jay Dooms. Um, unfortunately, we're just up against it for time, but we will try to answer your questions on Twitter at some point this week. And moving on to some major matters as the CPL and FC Edmonton announced officially 
on New Year's Eve, the club uh, had been changed to league office control effective immediately, and the league is looking for new ownership to, quote, ensure the long-term success of Edmonton. Uh, Clanikan made a statement saying, thanking Tom Fath uh, for his contributions and saying that the CPL would not have existed without him. And to talk about all of this and more, I'm bringing on Stephen Sandor, uh, the voice of FC Edmonton for the past couple of years, a good friend of mine, great colleague, uh, someone who has covered this team for the better past of the past decade, and someone who's written many, many books, um, is featured for Sportsnet, TSN, uh, and CBC. Uh, Steven, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. So let's start with this. We had you on the show in the summer uh, to talk about a lot of CPL problems happening across the board, interest right across the board, and the one that has been majorly uh, impacted was FC Edmonton, given this move. You went to cover the Canada Games that happened uh, in Edmonton in November against Costa Rica and Mexico. 45,000 fans uh, attended those games, roughly. Um, some people say it's very easy to say that Edmonton is a soccer city, per se. Uh, but the next day, FC Edmonton, the club, only attracted 600 fans to Clark Stadium. Yeah. Um, for the first part, I think where Canada has gone in terms of the national team is so different. And for the national teams, I'm going to include the women and the men, is on such a different trajectory than the professional game now and that maybe other levels of soccer that it's, it's almost apples and oranges to compare them, uh, Thomas. I honestly think that if Canada play Costa Rica and Mexico pretty well anywhere in the country right now with the trajectory of the national team and the buzz that they've generated, they would have got sellout or close to sellout crowds no matter where they played. And that would be true if it was in Edmonton or in Toronto or in Vancouver or in uh, Winnipeg or Regina, you name it. People like going to events. People like going to big things. It's not as hard to sell a big diamond-studded event, a World Cup qualifier against Mexico featuring Alfonso Davies coming home, uh, his first real homecoming game since, all, since he's realized the success he's had with Bayern Munich. If you can't sell that event, you can't sell anything. But selling a regular season game for a league that most people haven't heard of and a league that uh, a team that doesn't have players that the average Edmontonian recognizes is a totally different animal. So when we compare those two to each other, when we compare Alfonso Davies, an Edmonton kid who's become a, a global superstar, to selling an FC Edmonton game and then saying, geez, why did only like several hundred people show up to the FC Edmonton game on the weekend, you know, sandwiched in between the two Canada games? I might as well ask, why didn't people go trampoline jumping at the mall between the two Canada games? Or why didn't people go and do Purple City at the legislature, which is an Edmonton thing, if you're listening from outside, where you go to the legislature and shine the orange lights in your face and they make the purple things in your eyes go and it makes everything look all purple it's a thing that Edmontonians do it makes us pretty unique but what I'm trying to say is we have that connection doesn't exist and we like to sort of link the two and say wow all these people came out to watch a world cup qualifier because that's an event there are people I know who went who don't even watch soccer on a regular basis they went because it was the thing to do at Edmonton it's just like People pay attention 
to Olympic events, to sports that they don't pay attention to for the other four years. They go to the, the teams pick up interest when they're in the playoffs. You care about big star studded events. And so it's, 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 it's difficult to compare the two. So I, I guess that would be my first caveat when we do that comparison of where CanPL and, and the national team are, because I'm going to tell you as much as people like to say that there's a link between the two, there isn't the national team's success and the national team's rise in, in the consciousness of Canadians means absolutely nothing to the baseline of CanPL's recognition in Edmonton or at York or wherever else in, in the league because they're two totally different things. They play the same sport, but they're not in the same league. And look, they're already having problems. Um, we, we know that, um, you know, when the transition, the club folded uh, after the NSL, wanted to come back. And obviously, we know that CPL tried a launch in uh, 2018. Didn't happen. 2019 had to wait for FC Edmonton. But, you know, how important is it that the league doesn't owe, own the club for long, as obviously it would be a, a conflict of interest? Well, I think this reminds me of the NASL, doesn't it? Like, for all of us who follow the NASL... And ironically, the, the number of times that Tom Fath or the Fath family funded other teams in the NASL so they could make payroll. The Faths did this for a long time where they, there were league-funded teams in NASL, the teams that went ownerless all of a sudden, teams that needed help to make payroll. And I'm going to tell you that if you have that league-owned team on the books and you're not a major league, maybe the NHL can get away with it for a little bit with the Coyotes or something like that, right? But when you're not a major league, when you have the owners chipping in, one is you erode the value of the team. So if I'm coming in to buy FC Edmonton, I am immediately offering half of what maybe I would have offered Tom Fathport straight up because I'm not an idiot. No business person would be that silly because they would say, if the league is owning the team, now I'm going to take it off your hands. I ain't paying what you might have thought it was worth even two months ago. And you're telling me that you have to subsidize the payroll. You've got to get me involved. I'd almost be willing to say, you give me the team, I'll take it off your hands. And then we'll do some, you know, I got to tell you for, for everything that we've heard that this team tried to get uh, other investors involved and, and what have you and couldn't make it happen. Now you're in a situation where, where you're basically telling every, the whole world that your hat's in your hand. This is what happened at NASL when you start having league owned teams. The second thing is, when you're a smaller league and you have league-owned teams like this, it signals to everyone, not that there's a problem in Edmonton, but it signals to everyone there's a problem in the league. When we heard that NASL teams were, you know, had to, that owners were helping to make payroll on certain teams, no one said, oh, that's a bad market, or, you know, that's, that's, a t that's tough on this team, or that's tough there. We started thinking, oh, the NASL's in trouble. So while fans within the structure and fans who follow the CanPL will say, well, this is an Edmonton problem. People who don't follow the CanPL who will just hear, wow, this small league has a league-owned team in year three, will say that's a CanPL problem. That, that affects the advertisers you can bring in. That affects even the players that you'll be able to bring in. Trust me, players will be, even, will be nervous. But think about this. If you're an agent now, how comfortable are you signing with FC Edmonton? This is why this needs to get resolved quickly and it needs to get 
done where you can find an owner. If it's not bluster, when the league says in this press release that there is interest out there, well, then they have to make that interest. They have to turn that into reality pretty quickly. Because if this gets to the point where the season starts and players are still being paid by the other owners or the league, however you want to call it, of that collection of money to keep FC Edmonton afloat. And let's face it, FC Edmonton, and this we saw this in any league, in any league I guarantee you, when there's been a league-owned franchise, that team is a lame duck team. No one's paying for, to, to have that team beat me, my team. I'm paying just to get warm bodies on the field in Edmonton to keep them playing. But I'm not paying for them to be good enough to beat me. If Edmonton goes out there league-owned game one of the season, they're going to finish in last place. They're going to finish in last place by a good mile. So that's going to further erode fat interest, what, what's, what's left. And you're going to be left with a lame duck, a lame duck situation. You know, we've seen this before. And, and that's, that's the ironic thing. Maybe being around NASL for as long as we were in Edmonton. And, and again, Edmonton is not necessarily a new team. It's a team that's been around for more than a decade. You know, but, but we've seen this before with other teams. And, you know, we've seen, you know, this, it, I hate to say it for the people that recognize what I'm talking about. This feels a bit like Ryo OKC over again, or, or, or one of those situations. If this team starts the season without an owner, then I think it even becomes more of a critical mass where there's more weight and there's more desperation to, to sell, to get this club sold and get this club to a new owner. And trust me, you got to be almost really careful once you're league owned because I, we've seen a situation before where, you know, where league owned teams get turned over to an owner. And I've seen this in soccer before uh, in smaller leagues where then it's like, wow, we went from the frying pan to the fire because they had to find someone. And that can also be a bit of a problem. I, I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard the Oilers brought up as the new owners of FC Edmonton. I mean, I think that started in 2012. So I think I've, Almost about the ten year anniversary of and, and I, I've talked to the Oilers several times. I mean I I cover the team here and there, so I I've asked them a few times and and each time that people were talking about the rumors, they were like, Yeah, not really. And, and then, you know, now I'm hearing, Oh, Alfonso Davies will buy the team. That's nice. Maybe, maybe someone should ask him. That, that, that would be a, a lot of pressure on a on a twenty one year old. I'm gonna ask all of you out there and all of you listening, would you buy FC Edmonton? If I offered it to you for a dollar, and if your answer is no, you should not tell anyone else that they should be buying it. Because a lot of people say, well, geez, if FC Edmonton only had a new stadium, if only they had this, if only they had that, well, none of these things are going to happen in the near future, right? I mean, I mean, people like to think that these things are magically going to appear. We live in a COVID era. Governments aren't going to be building a soccer stadium, a specific soccer stadium for anybody. We have to be realistic here. Someone's going to have to say, I can make FC Edmonton work at Clark Stadium for the next little while. And if I have to find a stadium, I'm going to have to drum up some of this money myself and drum up through some private partnerships and such. But that's going to take a while. You know, and I go back, I post an article I wrote for Alberta Venture in 2015, which is a, was an Alberta business magazine, in which I talked to Tom Fath about, you know, back then what it would take to make FC Edmonton profitable. And he said his break-even would be to get about 8,000 people in the stadium. He was operating at a stadium that, you know, holds 4,200 max. So basically on the hope that one day 
that the stadium would come that would be big enough for the team to break even. So even if this team sells, and I know a CanPL budget is smaller than an ASL budget, but honestly, at 4,200, if FC Edmonton is selling out, they're still going to lose money. And, and I remember that article, if you, um, by the way. If you want to own this team, you know, you have to have, it's got to be a hobby. It's got to be someone who's rich enough that they can take on this money losing hobby because it's, it's not, you're not, you're here to be a steward of something for the community and to, to help build soccer in Canada. But if the idea is, is that you think that you can get out of this by even breaking even look somewhere else. Well, well, Steven, you touched on, on, on so many topics, obviously the big one, uh, the Oilers uh, interest, uh, obviously the new report that came out of, Club owners helping pay for for players' salaries and whatnot, even though we won't get into. But but most importantly, the stadium plan and whatnot, and and, and I completely agree because I, I like I said before, I remember that that article coming out, um, and and when the extra three thousand seats were expanded to Clark Stadium, uh, and even then they weren't profitable. Everything you know in context. Do you believe that they will find a new owner before the twenty twenty two season? I mean, I, I can honestly say I don't know the answer to that question because I think we know the caveats that are out there that make this team difficult to sell. We know that we know that this team has been looking for investment for a long time. But and I make it clear that they were looking for investment. So they weren't looking to sell. They were looking for people to come in to 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 help maybe to create more of a group partnership. Maybe kind of similar to what we saw with the Hamilton Tiger Cats and Forge today with the formation of their sports consortium, bringing more people in. We've heard about a lot of the, you know, a lot of the rumors out there about people who've kicked the tires and, and such on that. But obviously those, that drive has not been successful. And I think it's really easy to blame and to, to look at the last three years in isolation and say, what has Tom Fath done or was Dave Fath done? Was the Fath family done? But I think you forget, and, and I know this, and again, uh, for the listeners, I have to be, you know, state my conflicts of interest because obviously I used to be, you know, for, for close to a decade, one of the voices of FC Edmonton and, and yes, and checks were signed to me by the Fath family. Uh, so I need to, you know, put that out and clear that, that I was part of that business because otherwise it'd be conflict of interest not to declare that. But Paths, I got to tell you, have always been exceptionally loyal people and, and good to the people that are, they put around them and the people they employ. And Tom Fath used to be, and, and you know this from NASL days, he used to show up at stadium at the crack of dawn to help lay cable for the broadcasts. Tom Fath spent a lot of money for a broadcast truck. And this is where it's going to get, I'm going to get in trouble now. He spent a lot of money for a broadcast truck to begin the Can season, to, to, to up the level of broadcasting under the understanding that he was going to, that we, FC Edmonton was going to have some control over its broadcasting going into the Can season. And then when the, the, the media pro deal was struck, he was kind of held holding the bag for a lot of upgrades to broadcast that he didn't need to do. And that was pretty expensive. So I don't want to get into the politics because that, that gets really inside baseball of some of this stuff. And it also makes me seem petty because, again, that were a place where I had worked. I think we need to get and be realistic that Tom Fath spent a lot of money over a lot of years. And when this team came into NASL, they were the highest spending team in NASL. And then that, that declined over time. So I think we, we have to be realistic here and understand that Tom Fath isn't escaping what was a three-year journey. This has been a 12 to 13-year journey. 
and there's been a lot of things that have gone back and forth. But one thing that's never changed is FC Edmonton has never made a dime. It's lost a lot of money. And I go back to something that Tom Fath told me once years ago. He said, if you want to own a, a soccer team in Canada, imagine the worst, the most amount of money you can lose in a year. Then multiply it by 10. Yeah, no, it's it's so true, everything you say. And and me having uh, season tickets from, you know, 2012 to 2017. Right. I remember. I remember seeing uh, Tom Fath and his, and his son, uh, the company that they had there. M31 laying, you know, the cables, and it's super rare to see an owner do any of that. To, to close out with this, uh, Stephen, because we don't have much time, everyone knows that, you know, this, this is, is there's so much uncertainty going on right now with what will happen. But if you had to make a, a, a calculated guess, considering how, you know, the club hasn't made money, even, even Jeff Paulus, you know, former head coach, uh, you tweeted that uh, it, it's a very uninspiring um, stadium. And, and it's hard to attract investors for such a long time. But what do you think is next? Do you think, do you see a rebrand happening? Do you see, um, you know, more of the same? The CPL had already, you know, maybe not owned the team during the year, but, you know, they, they were staffing a lot. And obviously the club was already on, on, on bones uh, in, in terms of uh, club uh, staff. I mean, in terms of just communication with the media, it was so slight this year, the amount of like information we get or press releases. And mind you, and, and I'll be the first to say, like, I wasn't at every game this year. I wasn't even close to that this year where I'd been to every FC Edmonton game, you know, and that it has a lot to do with some changing things in scheduling, some changing things in my schedule, as well as, you know, not working really full time. But what I'll say is this. I look at things very big picture. I don't look at this as an Edmonton problem. I look at this as, as a league problem. And, you know, I'd spoken with you and I know before in the summer, we talked about this very uncomfortable discussion that, you know, it's really easy to point at Edmonton uh, from other cities and say, Oh, what's wrong in Edmonton. But really attendance has been way down across the league. And it's not like York is doing much better attendance wise. I think, Edmonton is part and parcel of a giant where the league needs to refocus on each of its markets and people. And I know it's been really hard with COVID, but the brass next year at CanPL need to measure their success by how little time they spend in their office and how much time they're spending in each of their respective cities. Cause they're, they need to get out more. They need to be in these, in, in the different markets and start to understand them a little bit better because the thing is, is the longer that Edmonton goes and whether it's a rebrand, whether, whether they give them a, a new name that doesn't have the city's name in the name and uh, new colors, what have you, it's none of it's going to matter unless you get strong ownership, unless you get people who are plugged in and, and are given the freedom to run the team as Edmonton needs their team to be run. Just like, Calvary needs to be run, how the Calgary market needs to be run. And these decisions can't be made from league office. The individual owners need to be allowed to be make, to make the decisions. Scheduling has to be a lot better. The league has to stop putting themselves in a situation where they have to reschedule so many games. They have to understand that CONCACAF League and stuff are coming, and there's no excuse now. You know that these, these tournaments are coming. There's no excuse to have to move like a whole bunch of Edmonton's weekend games to weekdays to juggle for everyone else having to move their schedule. 
you know, the league should make a pledge to its, its fans how few week that there's a cap on number of weekday games you're going to play. They, they need to start thinking about what these markets need to be more fan friendly. But I will say this, and this is going to sound harsh, but the fact is for a small league, once you start getting into long-term league ownership of teams and such, it feels like the beginning of the end. I got to tell you, as much as I think CamPL has done well on field, this is a major, this is not a small tremor. This is not a small crack. This is an earthquake that has rocked the league. And if this doesn't get resolved by the time a ball is kicked in the spring, it's not, does not bode well for the future of the league as a whole. You got to have the local teams generating big time local, local deals for their, for, for their markets and doing what they can. We have to stop thinking nationally, start thinking locally with all the teams and things will be, I hope better. Well, Stephen, well said. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, there's even been crazy things even said, such as this club could even be relocated. But obviously, there is no substance to that report. Uh, again, I want to thank you so much for your time, Stephen. Wish you the best of luck. And hopefully, we see each other uh, in 2022. Looking forward to it and looking forward to, I hope, what will be a, a good season coming up. Uh, Moving on to some news and notes. Well, speaking of CPL owners, uh, Forge FC announced a new ownership structure with the creation of Hamilton Sports Group. Uh, HSG will own and operate both the Hamilton Tiger Cats and Forge, as well as a master license agreement with Tim Hortons Field. Bob Young will remain chair and largest single shareholder. He's also joined by Hamilton-based Stelco, led by Alan Kestenbaum, who's a minority owner of the Atlanta Falcons, Scott Mitchell, current Ticats and Forge CEO, and Jim Lawson, the CEO of Woodbine Entertainment. Some player transactions. Valor FC announced the return of midfielder Raphael Oheen. HFX Wanderers Alex Marshall and Atletico Ottawa's Tevin Shaw were called up to the Jamaican national team ahead of a friendly against my Peru on January the 20th. Whitecaps defender Javane Brown was also named to that 23-man roster. York United announced that midfielders Sebastián Gutiérrez and Jordan Wilson plus defender Krisnovic Ensa have had options triggered, uh, but options were declined for Osvaldo Ramírez, Gerard Laverne, Alvaro Rivero, Julian Ulbricht, Nicholas Hamilton, and Jordan Feria. So that is going to do it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope the January camp roster and under-20 squad is revealed before next week. We'll have a full recap if it is. We also have an exclusive interview with WPSL Canada President Santiago Almala. Until then, for Thomas Neff, I'm Peter Galindo. We'll catch you guys next week. <laughs>